now and lead us in the scripture reading. Good morning. This is a scripture passage from John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you, see, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he required as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Would you please pray with me? <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you now that we get this opportunity to look at the story uh, and continue to see the signs that Jesus is performing, signs that he gives us in order to help us to believe. Uh, so please help us, Lord, this morning. Uh, we come from lots of different vantage points. Some of us uh, perhaps no faith at all. Some of us come this morning and we're deeply convinced that these things are true. Uh, but all of us need to hear what this passage has to say. And so help us uh, to listen and to, uh, to, to take these things to heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to have that open with you so you can follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, the, the scripture passage is printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, so the Gospel of John is written in order to help us to believe in Jesus. John himself tells us that this is why he's writing the gospel. And in fact, what he does is he says that the signs that Jesus gave are being communicated to us in order to help us believe. This is John 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what we're doing in this series that we're calling the signs and sayings of Jesus is this. We're looking at six of the signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. And then we're going to also look throughout the series at the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And all of these combined are helping us to see Jesus in all of his glory. The Gospel of John begins by telling us in 1 John, or not 1 John, in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, so the glory of Jesus is being displayed. It's, it's like if you think of like a, a precious jewel, a diamond or something like that, that has multiple sides by which you can look at it. Like this is what these signs, when you take them together, help us to be able to see. Or maybe uh, if maybe if that doesn't help you, maybe think of a puzzle. 
right, kids? You all like to do puzzles. My family over Christmas, we ended up doing lots of puzzles together. And, you know, every now and then you see this puzzle piece and you're like, man, that's a really cool piece. Like, whatever's on that piece that just really jumps out at you. Like, maybe that's the piece that helps you, like, begin putting a new part of the puzzle together. But the piece by itself, as interesting as whatever might be on the piece is, right, it only really makes sense in light of the larger puzzle. And so in the same way, right, the, the individual signs are really interesting, and there's a lot to learn from them individually, but it's, it's when we bring them together and we begin to put together the larger puzzle that we begin to see the true glory of Jesus. So we began the series last week. And last week we looked at Jesus turning water to wine. So that's the first of the signs that Jesus performs in Cana. And there's all kinds of debate about is there six signs, is there seven signs, is there more than seven signs. Uh, we're not getting into any of that. I just picked the six that, like, everybody agrees these are the six. Um, so the first sign that everybody agrees on uh, is Jesus turning water into wine. And when we looked at that last week, what we said was that the sign was demonstrating for us Jesus' commitment to make purification for sin, because uh, you remember he uses water from purification jars to turn into wine, and also the abundance of the kingdom of God, because wine was a sign of God's abundance uh, in the future kingdom that he is going to bring. Today's sign is going to let us see a different angle of Jesus' glory. The angle we're going to see today is that Jesus is the one who, who speaks life, that his words have creative power. Uh, but along with the sign, there's a warning. It's actually very interesting how these three, how the first three signs that we're going to look at work together. The first sign we're told everybody believes. The second sign we're told this cautionary warning about how signs can sometimes trip you up. And then in the third sign, what we're going to see next week is that somebody has a sign right in front of their eyes and they don't, they don't, it doesn't seem like they believe. So these three signs seem to work together to provide us like this caution about how we approach the signs. So let's set the stage for what happens today. And we do that by looking at verses 43 or 45. Because there's, there's, you know, obviously like the Gospel of John is continuing a narrative. And we've skipped over several important stories that the author, John, is presuming you know as he is writing here in verses 43 to 45. So he says, after two days he left Galilee. Now Jesus himself had, uh, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his, own, in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had been there. Uh, so so if, you're, if you're not familiar with what's just gone on, you're not going to understand this transitionary paragraph. So let's, go, let's work our way backwards. So right before Jesus coming back into Galilee, Jesus had been spending time in the region of Samaria. There's a lot to be said, but I'm just going to keep it really simple. Jesus met a woman by a well, and through his conversation with that woman, she came to believe. And then through her, uh, many Samaritans, we are told, come to believe in Jesus. So this woman really is the first evangelist to the Samaritan world. Uh, she's the first one that communicates some aspect of who Jesus is. And what we're, what, what, uh, when you look at that, their emphasis is on the belief that the Samaritans are expressing. 
right before that. The reason Jesus had to go through Samaria is because before that, he had been in Jerusalem. Uh, and so the reason he had been in Jerusalem is because the Passover feast was being celebrated. And if you're a devout Jew and you're in proximity to Jerusalem, you go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. And that's the scene where, if you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, that's one of the two times that we're recorded that Jesus turned over the tables in one part of the court of the Gentiles uh, at the temple. A lot to be said about that, but we're not going to look at that. We'll come back to these stories at some future point. But in that particular situation, really interestingly, uh, we're told that people believed, but the belief is critiqued by John. John says that, that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So we're told that people begin to express some kind of faith, but the faith, if you take John's critique, it seems like there's something suspect, something that we're not sure about yet, about the nature of this faith. So that's the context, right? You have the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. Then you've got the cleansing of the temple in uh, the second half of chapter 2. Then you have uh, skipping chapter 3 and getting into chapter 4. You've got the, the interaction with the Samaritan woman, the woman from Samaria. Uh, and now here we are, and Jesus has, uh, after a couple of days in Samaria teaching and evangelizing, he comes back to his hometown. And we're given this really weird statement. Now Jesus himself had pointed out, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So John here is giving us, I think, a very important clue to understand what's about to happen. Otherwise, it's a non sequitur. Otherwise, you're like, why on earth are you throwing this in there if it's not important for us in order to be able to understand what it is that we are about to see? Uh, and so here's what we're about to see. We're about to see that how you respond to Jesus and how you respond to the signs of Jesus really matters. If you were a part of our Bible studies this past week, we uh, introduced to you to this idea of making application when you're studying the Bible by using four, we call them buckets. Uh, and these buckets are identity, values, attitudes, and behavior. If you're not a part of a Bible study, this is one more reason why you should be. Um, but without going into great detail about them, the idea is that, that as, as we come to understand our, how uh, identity works through Scripture, that that overflows into affecting the things that we value. That as we, our values are aligned, that then overflows into affecting our attitudes. And that it is from this identity and values and attitudes that our behaviors uh, get formed and shaped. So oftentimes when we think of application, right, we think of behavior, but we actually sometimes need to go further back in order to be able to not just change behavior, but actually have transformative change. Jesus' identity here for us is being revealed. We're seeing some aspect of who he is. What we're being warned is how our attitude towards Jesus can affect how we understand his identity. How our attitude towards Jesus, how our attitude towards the things that Jesus does can help us or hinder us from actually seeing Jesus for who he is. What he is warning us is that sometimes you can think that the sign is more important than what the sign is actually pointing to. I want you to pretend with me it's the summer. You've, you've got your family vacation, or you're going on vacation with some friends, uh, you've been 
working this out. You're so excited. You're going to go to Yosemite Park. Cars parked. Cars packed. You got everything ready. You start making the trek. All right. You're getting up there, uh, and then you see the sign for Yosemite National Park. Now that you know, as far as national park signs go, that's not bad. That's a pretty nice national park sign. I've seen some pretty lame ones. Um, so, but imagine, right, that you, you make the trek up the Sierras. You get there and you see the sign and you're like, guys, Yosemite National Park, look at the sign. Y'all ready to go home? You would never do that, right? You look at that sign and what's that sign? That sign is telling you this is what's waiting for you. You would never in a million years look at that sign and say, ah, that's enough. That sign is inviting you into the park so that you can explore the amazing things that are there. The sign is giving you a sense of the glory of Yosemite National Park. And the warning that we're being given is that sometimes we take the signs of Jesus and we're satisfied with the sign and we actually haven't ventured in to see what the sign is actually, who the sign is actually pointing towards. And we see this in the official. So this official comes. Uh, we're told that a certain official, royal official whose, whose son lay sick in Capernaum, uh, when the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him, begged him to come, and heal his son who was close to death. So this royal official is probably working for Herod Antipas. Uh, so if you, you know, familiar with like the, the birth stories of Jesus, that's Herod the Great. Herod the Antipas comes after Herod the Great. So this is a different Herod. Uh, and so this guy hears that Jesus is in Galilee and he takes the one day journey from Capernaum to Cana. Uh, so Galilee is the region and Capernaum and Cana are two different cities in the region. And it's about a day's journey from Capernaum to Cana. Uh, and, uh, so, but imagine, right? So this is like not, there's no Instagram, there's no Google Maps, right? Jesus, like you heard that Jesus is in a town, but by the time you get there, you don't know that Jesus is there. What would prompt somebody to just venture off in order to find Jesus? Well, on, on the one hand, right, he's heard really amazing things about what Jesus has done. But on the other hand, you, like, you really have to like, let it sink in how significant it is. It says that his child, his son, uh, later on in the passage, he uses the word child. Uh, so that leads us to believe that this was a young child, uh, had a fever. Now, back in Jesus' day, fevers were not something you messed with. Uh, fevers could end up taking your life. In fact, one statistic that I read, which is, mind-boggling, is that 49%, only 49% of kids made it to the age of five. Could you imagine if in our congregation, less than half of the kids made it to the age of five? So then when a child is sick, it is a, it is a desperate moment. So that is what prompts this man to venture to go to find Jesus. Because Jesus is this miracle worker who 
who's been doing these amazing things. That's, I think, the identity that the official has for Jesus right now. Jesus is a miracle worker, and so I'm going to go ask him to help me. Come down to Capernaum. So Cana's further up in the hills than where Capernaum is. Come down with me to Capernaum in order to heal my son. Now, we don't want to be hard on the royal official, right, because we've all been there. We can identify with the royal official in those moments in our lives where the need feels so great that you just like, I need, I need somebody to do something about this. Uh, we can all identify whether you have faith or not in Jesus, those moments where the need is so pressing that the pain, the fear, the doubt makes us desperate for somebody to do something and we call out to God, if you do this, then I will. So we don't want to throw stones at the official. We want to we empathize. We want to identify ourselves with the official because it's an important thing for us to do in this story. But then Jesus responds to the official by uh, revisiting what I think John introduces to us when he says a prophet has no honor among his own country. John is giving us the interpretive clue that then Jesus picks up on when he says in verse 48... Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. So here's the warning again, right? The warning is, do not mistake the signs for what the signs are pointing to. It is really easy for us to latch on to a sign, a statement, some kind of symbol, and allow it to cloud our ability to see the larger picture. I was reminded of this actually on Monday. So as probably all of you know, right, Monday was Martin Luther King Day. Uh, and I'm actually reading right now the, the recent biography that came out on Martin Luther King by Jonathan Ives. If you're a biography reader, it's amazing. Like this thing reads like a novel. If you're interested in Dr. King, if you're interested in the civil rights, this is one of the best biographies that I've read, and I've read a lot of biographies. So I've decided along with reading this biography that I wanted to read some of Dr. King's speeches. So I've been reading along with that A Call to Conscience, which is a collection of some of his speeches. So, you know, so it's Martin Luther King Day. So obviously I'm like, oh, let me like do some more looking around and poking around on the Internet. And I stumbled on this really fascinating article that somebody was, was commenting on how um, Dr. King's children have expressed a concern that, that a lot of Americans have reduced the legacy of Dr. King to his I Have a Dream speech. And that the I Have a Dream speech is the only thing that most of us know about him and that that sums up the totality of who he is. But the reality is that Dr. King's legacy and his ministry is much more expansive than one speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, as important of a speech as that was. And so as I was reading that, I was reminded of this story where, where we, like, we are still capable of mixing up the sign with the thing that it's actually pointing to. And, but here's the weird thing, right? John tolls, tells us, we, I mean, this is at the end of the gospel, but we've front-loaded it in order to help us to see. John tells us, I'm giving you the signs to help you believe. So here's the tension that we face. The tension that we face is that our um, our ability to see Jesus for who he is is limited because of our finiteness, because of our frailty, because of our sin. 
And so Jesus gives us signs in order to help us see. Jesus provides us signs in order for us to be able to see him for who he is because he knows that by ourselves we're never going to get it. And yet, he warns us that if we're not careful, the sign can replace him. And he doesn't want that. And so that's what, that's what he does here. So what's fascinating is that the father says, yes, Jesus, come down with me to Capernaum, heal my son. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. You go. He doesn't say exactly that. But it's really striking where it says, come down with me. And Jesus says, go. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'll come down with you. Jesus says, go, your son is going to be healed. And we're told that man said, okay. And he went. And then this amazing thing happens. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that this boy, that the boy was, was living. Uh, when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, he said to him, they said to him, uh, yesterday at one in the afternoon. The fever left him. Uh, then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will be healed, will, uh, your son will live. Uh, so he and his household believed. This was the second sign that Jesus performed from in, uh, after coming from Judea to Galilee. Isn't it interesting that uh, John wants us to know that the miracle occurred at the exact moment that Jesus spoke those words. Why is that significant? Right? Partly it's significant because you uh, understand, right, that it takes away any idea of coincidence. Right? The, the father had been gone for over a day. So it would not be out of the realm of possibility for the father to think, oh, well, he must have gotten better right after I left. And Jesus had nothing to do with it. But he asks, well, when did this happen? And they said, oh, about 1 o'clock. And he instantly knows what? This was Jesus. And here's what, what I think is really interesting and, and we really need to latch on to, right? It says that after that, he believed. So what happened? I submit to you that what happened is that his attitude towards Jesus changed because his, his understanding of Jesus' identity changed. How does understanding of Jesus' identity change? Because there's no way on earth that his son happened to get better at the exact moment that Jesus said, your son will be healed. And so what happens? Faith is born in him because Jesus' identity is no longer miracle worker. It is now Savior. Now, does he believe that Jesus died on the cross for a sin? No, because none of that had happened yet, right? But his faith became substantive to the point that John wants us to see that he believed. All right, so. Sorry, my mouth is dry today. Um, what does the sign reveal about Jesus? So there's a second reason why I think it's significant that we're told that the boy was healed at the exact moment that Jesus spoke. John 1, John begins his gospel this way. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him 
all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. I want to submit to you that the voice that spoke at the beginning of time, that the voice that spoke and brought order out of the formless void, that the voice that said, let there be light, let there be stars, let us make mankind in our own image. Ten times in Genesis 1, we are told that God speaks. I submit to you that it is that voice that spoke at one o'clock in the afternoon on this particular day. And so as a result, nothing could happen but for this boy to be healed. And in the same way that God's voice spoke and those things happened, Jesus' voice spoke and the healing happened. Nothing else could be true. And so you see, Jesus' glory is being revealed for us, not simply as a miracle worker who can make sick people well, but Jesus' glory is being revealed to us as the Lord of life. Because let's face it, what was the dad freaking out about? The dad was not freaking out about his kid being sick. The dad was freaking out about his, dad, his kid dying. Because only 49% of kids made it to the age of five. As you see, the one who spoke life at the beginning is the one who would bring life. He is the one who would undo death by his death so that the power of death could be destroyed. This is, we sang this this morning. Uh, I did not pick this song. I mean, David, David did like a phenomenal job. I'm going to pull this up real quick if my computer, my iPad won't let me pull it up. Uh, the last verse that we sang of Abide With Me was like 100% everything that we're talking about right now. This is what Paul says. Paul himself says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You see, this is the glory of Jesus. This is the glory of who he is. And this is why we are invited to believe. This is his identity. His identity is the one who speaks life. He speaks and things happen. That's the kind of power that Jesus has. And that sign can be a stumbling block to us. How? Because it can be really tempting for us to ask Jesus for stuff and miss Jesus altogether. It can be really tempting for us to want things from Jesus, but not actually want him. It's interesting, the nature of signs. They're almost like, uh, they're like training wheels on a bike. You know, kids, right, when you're learning to ride a bike, training wheels are awesome. Right? Adults that ride bikes, right? You all know training wheels when you're starting off, they're great. But at a certain point, the training wheels get in the way. Right? If you really want to ride a bike, I guarantee you that those of you who are like, you know, avid cyclists, none of you would dream of putting training wheels on your bike. Right? It would completely mess you up. Signs, similarly, important in order to point us towards Jesus. But if we come to rely on the signs too much, then what ends up happening? They become like training wheels on a world-class bike. This doesn't work. 
What Jesus is inviting us is to say, look, I'll provide for you. Like Jesus, here's the amazing thing, right? The, the guy comes to Jesus, and Jesus knows that his motives are not right. Like Jesus can, because he sniffs it out. He's like, look, all you want is a sign. And yet, he still performs the sign. He still heals the boy. And the man ends up coming to faith in Jesus. Church, uh, Jesus has performed many signs for you in order to help us to believe. The challenge for us is to look at the signs as they point us towards Jesus and not look at the signs and say, hmm, I wonder if I can get some signs, my, signs thrown my way. But to look at the signs and say, the signs are pointing me to some, someone greater and that what he has done for me through his death on the cross is what I really need. That's the provision that I really need. That's his true identity. And if we come to see him for his true identity, then, then out of that will flow for us belief in him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your son Jesus provided these signs for us and that you saw fit to give us these signs, uh, record these signs for us in the Gospel of John. Uh, gracious God, would you please help us as a church, help us as individuals, help us as a community uh, to, to see the signs. Help us to, to acknowledge them. Help us to celebrate them. Help us to delight in them. Help them to strengthen our faith, but keep us from the mistake of valuing the signs over Jesus. Keep us from the error of wanting stuff from you and that clouding out and, and, and hiding from us, uh, you yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, continue worshiping by singing our next song. Sing holy, holy.